Kids in the service, we've been doing that. Read two wonderful stories this week about kids in the service. You just got to hear this. One little boy was being uh, a little unruly, and um, parents had just tried everything. Finally, his mother leaned over, and this story, by the way, is told by the pastor of the church. His mother leans over and quietly whispers in his ear, if you don't stop misbehaving, the pastor's going to lose his place, and then he's going to have to start his sermon all over again. (laughs) And the pastor said, it worked. (laughs) The other one, on another Sunday, little boy, again, misbehaving. Again, parents had tried everything, and finally, dad picks him up and is marching out the back of the church. Father is marching, not looking happy. And as they get to the back door, the congregation hears the little boy cry out, Pray for me! (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? I do little informal checks with some of our parents from week to week. So far, seems to be so good. We, uh, we haven't uh, gotten to the, any of those levels yet. Moms and dads, I know that uh, these can be challenging days for you, so thanks. Those of you with little ones, thanks for uh, making the extra effort and for hanging in there. And for the rest of you, Applewood family, thanks for being all the help that you can be in these days. I hope you'll get, by, uh, get, get down to the basement, I should say, before you leave today. If you haven't seen it, uh, go check out the... Uh, progress. It's very exciting. So we're back to Colossians 1 this morning. We are about ready to wrap up this series. We're going to look at one more phrase or a couple of verses and rather lengthy phrase in our Colossians 1 text that we've been in for a few weeks now. And then next week we will conclude and sort of review, make some, some final practical applications, and then we will begin into our, uh, our Lenten season series. Colossians 1, as you know, we've been studying some amazing declarations, proclamations of truth that are just kind of springing off the page as Paul writes to the believers in Colossae and as he writes for the believers in Applewood. You know, I'm a firm believer that we always need to, uh, to understand the context and the times and We'll do a little bit more with that next week. It's sort of the tail end. Practical application, what did this mean for the Colossian believers, but what can it also mean for us as well? And though Colossians wasn't written to us, it was certainly written for us. And there is very practical, I think, an important application to understanding the nature of our rescuer. That's what Paul is about in these these statements. And you remember that was the starting point of this series. The rescue operation. Really critical to remember that. Paul wrote that God rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Remember, the dominion of darkness is a place where the hearts of people are held captive. So I think it's really important that we remember that. It's, it's sometimes easy to think, and 
I've mentioned this a little bit that, that the dominion of darkness is, is this horrible place where only the worst of humanity lives. That is not true. The dominion of darkness, it's a, it's a heart condition. It's a description of the heart condition of all humanity apart from God in Christ Jesus. The eyes are blinded to the truth of what they were created for. Some of the nicest people that we know, some of the nicest people that you and I know are living as captives in the kingdom of darkness because they are living their lives without a relationship to God through Christ Jesus. God is not at the center of their life and life with self is at the center. Do you, uh, any of you ever see the, the old tract by Campus Crusade for Christ called The Four Spiritual Laws? <clears throat> if you've seen it, you remember the picture that is in there. It's a circle, and that circle represents a person's life, and inside of that circle is a throne. There's only one throne. There's only room for one person to sit. And that's the image that I always think of when I think of the dominion of darkness. That is the place where that throne, representing a person's life, is occupied by the person, by self. The dominion of darkness is a place where persons are ruling their own lives. And the mantra of the dominion of darkness is life is not about God. It's not even so much a mantra that life is about me because the fact is there are a lot of folks who don't think that way. There are a lot of folks who are just kind and loving and humble and other-focused. But the truth is, life is about God. And if God is not factored into our lives and the decisions that we make, into the lives, that is, the decisions that, that any person makes, they identify themselves as being those who are still captive in the dominion of darkness. The powers of darkness delight in people choosing to invest themselves in anything other than life with God and for God. Because when we recognize, when a person recognizes who God is, they recognize God in his greatness and God in his glory. They recognize that they were created to live in relationship with God. They recognize that God has taken the steps to make that relationship possible even though it has been broken, it has been fractured by sin. When a person recognizes that and turns and surrenders the throne of their life to the reign of God versus self-reign, guess who gets a heck of a lot of glory for that? God does. And so we can be sure that the domain of darkness and the powers of that domain delight when people choose to invest themselves in anything other than life lived in relationship to God. But we were not created to live for ourselves. We've seen that. We were created to live for God. We were created to live for him in relationship 
for all of eternity, finding in that relationship with God more love and more intimacy than, than can be imagined. But, but sin keeps people from that. Captive in this life and lost for eternity with no way out on their part. No way out until, until God rescues them. That's why we call it amazing grace. Amazing grace. God has come to my rescue. I love the way that Anne Lamott describes grace. Have you ever heard her speak? Such an interesting speaker. Just very uh, sort of train of, of uh, consciousness, stream of consciousness uh, when she speaks. But she says this, and I love this. She says, grace means you're in a different universe from where you had been stuck. When you had absolutely no way to get there on your own. It's so true. That is God's amazing grace. So we have been studying these, these amazing declarations about Jesus, our rescuer, the one to whose kingdom we have been brought into. Paul writes them, I think, because he knows the human heart. Remember, Paul is writing to believers, and he's writing for us as well as believers. He knows the human heart. He knows the tendency, I think, that we have to minimize the seriousness of the situation for those who have no relationship with God through Christ Jesus. We, we know that it's important, but yet somehow in the scheme of things, our concern for those who don't know Christ sort of falls down the scale a bit. Paul knows that. And so <clears throat> he is painting for us in this text a picture of the hopelessness of humanity apart from Christ. People need to know Jesus. People need a Savior. People need to live in the relationship with God for which they were created. And, and so out of that, he explodes this glorious picture of this, this wonderful, amazing God who has done this for us. So he knows the tendency of our human hearts to, to sort of slack off uh, in, in our understanding of how serious that is for people. I think he also knows the tendency that we have <clears throat> and this is the one that we've talked more about in this series, to become kind of ho-hum about what God has done for us. <sighs> Jesus saved me. Versus, wow, wow, God has saved me in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> he wants us to be absolutely in awe of our rescuer. And I think that that is only something that we can do as we willingly put ourselves under the truth of his word and a text like this and allow the Spirit of God to just chisel away at the hardness that encrusts our hearts, that causes us to think in some ways that we are all that in a bag of chips and that 
we weren't really as bad as all of that. No, we really were. And, and we need to come to a place in our lives where we allow the Spirit of God to just smack us in the face with that truth so that what resonates from our lives is a, wow, am I impressed with this God who saved me. So that's where we have been and, and that's where we are continuing this morning as we consider these, these final words of Paul, a sort of summary statement, if you will, as he uh, comes to the end of this particular text. So we're looking this morning at um, verses 15 to 22, as we have been reading together. Let's stand and read it again. Perhaps you can close your eyes because you have it memorized at this point. Let's read together. Familiar words. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn, from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Oh, my brothers and sisters, this is the glorious truth of the word of God. Yahoo! Yahoo! Go ahead and be seated. Amazing stuff. Now this morning, we want to look a little bit more closely at verses 21 and and 22. Can we put those back up on the screen, Heather? Let's let's read those one more time together, okay? We've got to hear these again. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Wow. Yeah, without blemish. But I have a lot of blemishes, and so do you. But in Christ, we are presented without blemish. God sees us through the holiness and the perfection of his Son. Wow. If that doesn't get you excited, you need to see a doctor. Because there is no pulse in your body. Okay. Now, with those two verses on the screen, even though this is just painfully obvious, bear with me, I want you to turn to someone nearby, and I want you to to ask them this question in, 
In these verses that we're looking at here together, in these verses, what part do we play in reconciliation with God? Okay? Go ahead. Ask someone next to you. It shouldn't take long. What part do we play in reconciliation with God? You got it. Yeah. Okay, what do you think? We got nothing. (laughs) Thank you, Tim. (laughs) All together, one word, nothing. We believe. We believe what the Scripture says. We believe, we trust. Same word in the original language, faith, believe, trust in what God says has happened in Jesus. But as far as anything that we have done to deserve that, anything that sort of stacked the deck in our behavior, not, not even remotely, okay? So important that we be clear on this because of I think because of where Paul is, is leading to this in verse 23, we're going to get there in a few minutes. Verse that we haven't read yet together in this series, but sort of the concluding verse uh, in this, this portion of Colossians that Paul has written. So let's look at Paul's summary statement um, about this rescue and just for a few minutes the, the language that he uses. First of all, he tells us that we were alienated from God. We were alienated from God before the rescue, alienated. Now, the word that he uses is a word that some translations properly translate as estranged or cut off or separated. But think with me for just a minute. Think of the word alienation. What do you see there as the root word? Alien. Alien. Now... I don't know what you think of when the word alien comes to mind. E.T. Some parents think of their middle school children. (laughs) Alien has this ring of something other for us. but, But listen to the very first definition of the word alien that Webster gives to us. It says, A resident born in or belonging to another country who has not acquired citizenship. Do you hear that? An alien is someone whose citizenship is somewhere else. They belong somewhere else. The the, the word that Paul uses literally means transferred to another owner. Let that one sink in for a minute. Transferred to another owner. To be an alien in that sense is, is not, it's not a neutral place. And so th- what we do is, is we lay over this, that whole cosmic battle that we see throughout scripture of, 
of good and evil, of light and darkness, language that, that Paul has used here, dominion of darkness versus the kingdom of the son that he loves, to be an alien is not to be in a neutral place. He's reminding the Colossians and he's reminding us of where they started, of where we started. We were captives in the dominion of darkness. We were alienated from God. We were persons whose citizenship or ownership had been given to another. As a result of sin in the world, we had been transferred to another kingdom. And we were citizens of that kingdom. To be alienated from God is not simply to be away from God or to be separated from God. It it is that. But it's to belong to someone else. Guess who that might be? If we're citizens in the dominion of darkness... That means that we belong to the rulers and the powers of that dark dominion. And the evidence of that ownership is in, and I want to say it this way, track with me for just a second, is in the motives or the reasons for our behavior. Paul states You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Another way to read that would be you were enemies in your minds as shown by or demonstrated by your evil behavior. I want to go back and and reiterate something that I said earlier and that is that, that folks who are captive and living life in the dominion of darkness are not all serial killers, okay? The scripture doesn't know a neutral zone in the spiritual world. You either are a child of God or you are not a child of God. You either live as a citizen in the kingdom of the son he loves or you are living as a citizen in the dominion of darkness. As much as I want there to be a neutral place for the nice, wonderful, loving people that I know, there is not a neutral place for them. We can take up the discussion in Scripture. It's a hard one. But Scripture teaches clearly that those who belong to Christ Jesus are the children of God and those who do not are not God's children. I think it's important to understand this again because of the seriousness of the situation for for all those folks who we don't designate as bad people. Of course they're not. They're wonderful people. They're dear people. Some of them are, are, are giving their lives to, to wonderful causes. They're generous and they care for others and they're humanitarians and 
they're green and all that they do and all those other things that, you know, that, that we sometimes assign as, as important. What is the motive that drives that? And this is really hard. I want you to know I don't say these things easily. If a person's heart has not been surrendered to the ownership of God through Christ Jesus, then the one who is sitting on the throne is self. That doesn't mean that they are a terrible person by human standards. That doesn't mean that they are awful. That doesn't even mean that they are selfish in the sense that we often think of selfishness. In fact, they may be very other-focused. They give their lives for the sake of others. They give and they give and they give. The seed of evil behavior in God's economy is thinking about life and relationships and self without God. When God is not a part of a person's thinking, when God in relationship with Jesus Christ is not the passion of an individual's heart, that person is a Godless thinker. And what Paul is driving at here is that Godless thinking results in evil behavior. Evil behavior is life that is lived without giving glory to God. We as human beings easily find ourselves in a place of being glory thieves. As God's people, we understand, or at least we should understand, as a result of what God has done for us and who he has created us to be, that it becomes our responsibility in all of life, our joyous responsibility, our delight to give glory to God for absolutely everything in life. Because Scripture teaches us clearly that without Him, we don't take a breath. So when Paul talks about evil behavior, He's talking about people who are living their lives as captives in the dominion of darkness. They have not been rescued. They have not had the opportunity to have their sins forgiven, to find redemption in Jesus, and to be able to think for the first time in their lives about how life is supposed to be lived in relationship to God, with Him getting the glory for any good thing that flows out of my life. Does this make sense? Okay. Evil behavior is all the behavior that flows 
from Godless thinking. Even though it's good and wonderful behavior by human standards, if God is not receiving glory, if God is not giving, getting credit, then we have become, people have become glory thieves. Self is on the throne. And that, put another way, is the sin of rebellion. And it is the sin of rebellion. It is the sin of disobedience. It is the sin of not exalting God. Romans chapter 1, that Paul says, is the reason for the wrath of God being revealed against humanity. So after reminding the Colossians of who they were and reminding us of who we were apart from Christ, he shifts gears and he reminds them of what God did and how all that changed. Two words, but now. But now. Those are two fabulous words. Get excited about those two words. But now. That means something has changed. But now. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. We learned last week, you remember, that reconciliation has to do with bringing peace to a broken relationship. God took the initiative. God took the initiative to extend to his, his enemies the olive branch of peace. And that fits perfectly with Paul's use of the words here, enemies in your minds. But now, through the death of Jesus Christ, you who are enemies are now reconciled restored to the relationship for which you were created. He says we are holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Wow, that is every student's dream. I graduated with straight A's even though I screwed up every exam along the way. Because someone else came in and took the test for me and they knew more than I did. And somehow, their grade got assigned to me. That's what Paul's talking about. Holy in God's sight, without blemish and free from accusations. It's really important that we hear those last words, free from accusation. Because we have learned that before we were rescued, before we were reconciled, we belonged to another owner, the evil one, the ruler of the dominion of darkness. Well, you probably can imagine that he's never happy about losing citizens to God's amazing grace. And as he sees individuals transferred from his dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son God loves... He will take every opportunity that comes his way to accuse you, to accuse me, to remind us of where we've been. To remind us of the failures and to cause us to doubt the reality of the rescue and the truth of who we are in Christ. Jesus said, When Satan lies, he is speaking his native language. That's all he does is lie. And we can be sure that if we are serious about surrender and living our lives in the kingdom of the Son whom God loves, the enemy will assault us with the crud from our past again 
and again and again. The numbers of times in my own life that he brings sins and stuff that I have done stirs shame about past failures, wanting desperately for those past sins and for those failures to continue to define me. Paul says, no. What's past no longer defines us. We are defined in the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus Christ. Holy, without blemish, free from accusation. In the present, in the future. (laughs) Amen. How the enemy doesn't want us to know this. How the enemy wants us to get mired in the stuff that brings failure. Wow. That's what he wants. That's where he wants us to live. Because God's grace is amazing. It's too good to be true. But in this case, it is, fortunately. Okay, so knowing this, I want us to to end this morning with the challenge that comes from, from verse 23. So let me read these verses again real quickly. And then add verse 23. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if, where'd that come from? If, that's a conditional clause, isn't it? If, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. I agree. This is one of those, the proof is in the pudding kinds of statements. You need to understand that Paul is not, he's not shifting gears on us here. All through this series we've read and read again about how God did something incredible. We, we determined again this morning that we had nothing to do with earning that reconciliation. There was nothing in us. God just did it because God is love and God is gracious and that's what God does. He did something incredible for us who were captive and hopeless and lost. He rescued us. Paul is not suggesting that all of this will be true if we live a certain way. What Paul is saying is that God has done all of this. This is true. This is a call to demonstrate by the life that you live that you really do believe it and that it is a reality. This is a call to the Colossian believers and to the Applewood believers to continue to take seriously what God has done and to live your life as if the grace of God really is amazing and has brought change because it has. I've often been asked by folks, and I'm sure you have too, when they're concerned about their eternal status, how can I know if I really am a Christian? It's a legit question. Well, that's easy. I give them my list. I tell them to go to church, to read their Bibles, to pray, to love others, to give, to vote for the person that I think is the right person for the office, etc., etc., etc. I think a better answer 
runs along the lines with what we've been emphasizing in this series over and over and over again. God has done something incredible for you through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you believe? And if you believe the picture that Paul has painted, if you believe that you were lost and hopeless and in a dark place of thinking and living without God, and God stepped into the midst of that and rescued you and opened your eyes and for the first time you were able to see the truth of who God is and the truth of who you were measuring, falling far short of the measure of His standard of holiness and you recognized your desperate need for a rescuer, for a savior, and you believed that. That's what Paul is saying. If you say that you believe, that's the starting point. If you continue in your faith, personal pronoun, not the faith, that's important too. He's not talking a creedal statement. He's talking about that point in your life when you recognize the truth of what God has done and you believed it. Didn't necessarily understand all of it. Didn't make perfect sense. But something resonated in your heart and you knew it to be true and you believed it. Paul says, continue in that belief. That's what the word faith is. Continue in your faith. Continue in that belief the belief that you were captive, that you have been rescued, that your sins have been forgiven, that you've been brought into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves. And you're living out your life out of a firm belief in that truth. That's what he means by those words established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. The truth of what you believe is impacting your life in the way you think and and, and it's working its way into the actions of your life at every level. Perfectly? No, hardly. I guess the question that always arises in my mind when a person asks me that question, how can I be sure that I'm a Christian? The question comes to my mind is, do you love Jesus? Do you have a passion to live for Jesus? Do you have a passion to make sure that he's exalted in everything that you do and everything that you say? You know, and sometimes a person will say, yeah, that is exactly what I want. And I say, go for it. Keep pursuing that. When the answer is, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I believed once. I walked the aisle once. I put my hand up and said, yes, I believe in Jesus. Well, if there is not a passion there, a passion that says, I want to make him the center of my life. I want to make him the one who receives glory for anything that comes out of my life that is good and noteworthy. If that passion is not there, then we stop and we go back and we talk about the beginnings again. Brothers and sisters, this is a call by Paul for for the heart. How many times have we seen that? Over and over and over again, it is a call for us to examine the conditions of our heart. We cannot 
by God's grace, we cannot understand in truth what the, what the Scripture teaches us about hopelessness and lostness and being in a dark place, <clears throat> rescued by God's amazing grace. We cannot understand that, I don't think, without the work of the Holy Spirit opening our hearts and our minds to that truth. And when He opens our hearts and our minds to that truth, He also brings with it that sense of what we've talked a lot about in this series. Oh, wow! What do I need to do? The question is, live for Him. Live for Him. Demonstrate your love and your appreciation and your gratitude for Him. Live for Him. Make Him known. Exalt Him. Bring glory to Him in all that you do and all that you say. Praise team, we need to wrap up this morning, so come on up. The greatest desire of your heart is to live for the glory of God in all that you say and all that you do, even though you know that's not what you're doing all the time. And brothers and sisters, give thanks for the work of God and His grace that is cultivating a heart that is living and desiring to live with greater and greater passion for Him. Called, rescued from the dominion of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves, I want to suggest to you one last time, that is no ho-hum statement. That is a, wow, look what God has done for me. What do I do in return? Live for Him. Great passion in all that you do and say.